0: Alright, so last week one of the main points that we had was about the title that Jude addressed these folks with in his prayer. If you recall he called them Beloved in God and that's how he starts out this second chunk of the letter, Beloved. So we see that it's not just something that is true about God's affection towards these saints, it's also true about the way that Jude addresses them. This shows us Jude's tone of his address to follow. Um, And it shows and displays his affection for the recipients of the letter. These people are not only loved by God, but they're also loved by Jude. And this is characteristic of the way that we ought to view one another. When we embrace that we are called beloved in God, It should affect the way that we view one another. We should show each other the same love that God has shown us. Jude continues in this verse 3. He says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude pretty clearly had a different topic in mind um, whenever he conceived of writing this letter to these people. Um, But he decided that it was better to write the saints an exhortation to fight for their faith. And we know that this text is inspired by God as it's in our holy scriptures. And therefore we can deduce that the spirit was influencing Jude's thought about what he was to write, how he was to write it, Um, And the words that ultimately ended up in our Bibles. The Spirit informed Jude about what kind of address was needed for these saints. And he tells us why he made this shift in, in subject change in verse four. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So who are these certain people? The fact that they crept in tells us that they at one time were accepted into the church body. Matthew Henry says that they, quote, glide in like serpents. These are folks that are on the inside. And yet Jude tells us that God designated them for condemnation, which means damnation. John Gill says, For reprobation is of the same date with the election. If, there, if one is from eternity, the other must be too, since there cannot be one without the other. If some were chosen before the foundation of the world, others must be left or passed by as early. And if some were appointed unto salvation from the beginning, others must be foreordained to condemnation from the beginning also. So simply put, if God elected some from the beginning, he also predestined others for condemnation. And this is what Jude teaches. This is a harsh reality for us to reckon with that there would be some that are set aside for wrath, for destruction, for damnation, but this is the central point of what Jude is saying here about these people. Does Jude, this, is, this gets into the certain people thing. Does Jude know exactly who is destined for damnation? <laughs> well, he can have a pretty good idea of it based on their actions, right? So as we continue on, we need to keep in mind that your actions are, are revealing what's in your heart. As Doug Wilson puts it, your theology comes out of your fingertips. You don't blaspheme God and love him on the inside. And so note that Jude doesn't name these people. He doesn't say, oh, well, it was, you know, David, it was Andrew, it it was this person, it was that person. No. Why? The verbiage here is one that sparks examination, both internally and externally. Am I one of these? And if not, who is? Jude bids you to find out and to fight against their schemes. Now, it should be mentioned as a caution that not every church is necessarily going to struggle with such false teachers being within their midst. However, you should often be examining the things that you're being taught. You should examine them every time you're taught something. Um, And this doesn't just go for the church, this goes for anything that we're being taught. We should hold it up against the light of the Holy Scriptures and examine its truthfulness. So when we exercise this sort of discernment, um, we have to act on it. Acting on this discernment is a necessary consequence of this passage. You must fight when there are false teachers among you, Jude says. All the rules about bringing charges against someone should be observed here and so i'm going to quickly go through a few of passages of scripture that can inform us on how such charges could be brought up christ says in matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained your brother but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What Christ is quoting in this passage is Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And this is the same ethic that we see applied in First Timothy. Chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 concerning charges against elders. Paul says, "Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest so the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality." And so What is it going to look like practically Um, if I stood here before you tonight and I was one of these and I, you know, uh, rambled off and said blasphemous things. I imagine there are probably, as I exited stage left, uh, Clint and some others would be you know, coming up to me. So it doesn't mean that we have to have this uh, confidentiality thing every single time whenever it's a very public sin, right? It's not as if we have to make sure that we pull somebody out of the room real quick after they sin and you know, address them one-on-one. Uh, but it does mean that whenever we can, that should be our preference, is to address people privately um, so that we are not doing Uh, what paul tells us not to uh, prejudging doing something from partiality we need to be measured in the way that we bring charges against one another and we need to uh, evaluate all the evidence that is present and you can't do that whenever you have like a mob mentality right and so that's what's being fought against here is um, going behind someone's back rallying up a, a crowd choosing sides that kind of thing the way that we deal with sin is like christians deal with sin We go to our brothers these people if they are in the church if these false teachers are in the church at one time they were admitted into the church they received a baptism they'd sit at the table with their brothers and so we cannot just all of a sudden decide that we are the all-righteous judge and the arbiter of what is just and decide that someone is a false teacher Um, now if they are teaching false things you know we must confront them in that but We cannot decide that in and of ourselves. Um, We must evaluate the evidence. We must bring it before them, give them an opportunity to repent, um, and then go along as Christ would exhort us as well as the law would exhort us. Um, And especially when it's an elder, um, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, we need to have two or three witnesses um, to bring these charges. So false teachers are detestable, but... We have to abide by God's law when dealing with them. I've asserted a few times that these people, the certain people, are false teachers. And I want to explain a little bit more why. If you're reading in the ESV, you'll notice that the section heading here is titled Judgment on False Teachers. Um, And even though that phrase isn't found in our text this evening, that's what the ESV titles it. And the ESV does this uh, because our text describes ones who teach heresy. If you look at the parallel passage to this in 2 Peter, you'll see that the phrase false teacher is used. 2 Peter is really a sister book to Jude. Um, They contain many of the same uh, sayings, the same content, And the same structure Um, scholars debate on which one came first but ultimately we don't know for sure which one came first and we don't know uh, some scholars would go on to tell you that one copied the other Um, I'm not very fond of that Uh, but I do think that we can see when they are speaking of the same things we can use them to show us a a clarification where the other one is not as clear. So in the verses that mirror uh, verse four of Jude, which would be second Peter two verses one through three, Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So you can see nearly the same content and the same flow of verse four in this passage. And Peter names such ones as false teachers. So Jude continues telling us that these false teachers pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny Jesus. The phrase perverting grace into sensuality indicates that their practices included teaching a perverted sexual ethic. The word that's translated as sensuality here can also mean debauchery and it's used in conjunction with the phrase sexual immorality many times in the New Testament. Many commentators agree that this perversion meant that the people were being encouraged, likely in the name of Christian liberty, to participate in sexual sin. Does this sound familiar? Many teachers in the church today are advocating for sexual immorality. I'm going to be frank with you. The people that are teaching this perverted sexual ethic are either, one, sexually immoral themselves, two, they're ignorant fools who ought not to teach, or three, they are being intentionally anti-Christian, or they could be some mix of all three. Regardless, they should be marked and avoided. So these could be the obvious perversions of the LGBTQ stuff, or it could be more traditional or conservative, sins. Basically, heterosexual lust and immorality. And people flounder on the sins that they can sympathize with. Have you noticed this? In your heart, when you see someone fall into sin, if it's something that you struggle with, you're less likely to speak out about it. Someone who couldn't imagine endorsing trans ideology might make light of the sin of pornography use. Many pastors turn a blind eye to cohabitation between unmarried couples. Some condone masturbation. Many do not call out sexual sin between couples because, and because this is never addressed, couples feel justified continuing in their sin because it doesn't go all the way. I'm going to explain something here. These sins to us may seem less weighty than that LGBTQ stuff. And that's because heterosexual sins are often a perversion of a natural thing, whereas LGBTQ is completely unnatural. So it's not sinful for a man to have desire for his wife, but it would be sinful for a man to have desire for a woman who is not his wife, whereas it is always sinful for a man to have desire for a man. But these heterosexual sins are more likely to be present in our circles. They should be called out, condemned as sinful, and repented of. To those who ignore, condone, or encourage these sins in the name of Christian liberty, they are, as Jude says, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Jude says that these false teachers deny Jesus Christ. How do they do that? They do so by rejecting Christ's teachings and setting their opinions and falsehoods above scripture. Verses five through seven will be our next section. I'll quickly reread that. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding city- cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude reminds his audience of the surety of destruction for unbelievers. We should be exhorted alongside them not to forget the doctrine that we have known and to accept the reminders that are brought to us as a grace to correct our course and shore up our weak spots in doctrine and in practice. So do not be one who is so proud as to think that they cannot learn something twice. Dude thought that it was important that he remind these folks of these doctrines. We can be reminded of things that we already know. Um, I think back in my own life <laughs> um, when I was you know, in my late teens and I'd already heard a passage preached on. And I, as the pastor got into the pulpit, you know, I would immaturely maybe roll my eyes because I'm like, oh, I already know this. Like, that's that that kind of attitude has no place among us and Jude is offering a reminder to his audience a reminder to us as well and we should take it we need it repetition is a great tool for teaching the views uh, the use of Jesus's name in verse 5 is very significant the sentiment that the Old Testament God was mean and that Jesus is nice is put to rest through Jude's reminder. It is Christ who saved Israel. It was Christ that punished and purged the ungodly from among them. We see here that condemnation was also brought on the angels when they sinned as they were cast into hell, as Second Peter 2, 4 says. And in verse seven, we see a third example of God's judgment being brought on Sodom and Gomorrah, which were known for their homosexual lust and subsequent dis- destruction when God rained down sulfur and fire on them. The sin of homosexuality is named in our text in verse seven, when Jude says that they, quote, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire so while the ESV translation is great and it gets at the idea of what's going on here a more literal translation would be the NASB which reads that they went after strange flesh Um, the NASB also contains a note that says that this could be read as different or other flesh and so basically (laughs) these men were going after other men John Gill's helpful on this point he says Quote, and going after strange flesh or other flesh, meaning not other women besides their own wives, but men and designs that detestable and unnatural sin, which from these people is called sodomy to this day. And which is an exceedingly great sin, contrary to the light of nature and law of God, dishonorable to human nature and scandalous to a nation and people and commonly prevails prevails where idolatry and infidelity do, as among the Catholics and Muslims, and arose from the idleness and fullness of bread in Sodom and was committed in the sight of God with great impudence. Their punishment follows impudence, I'm sorry. So as Gil points out here, idolatry and sodomy go hand in hand. Cultures that forsake God will end up engaging in sodomy. And people who engage in sodomy have forsaken God. Do you guys see that connection? This is going back to Romans 1, how we opened up our ministry here. These people were so disillusioned. They were in so much rebellion to God that they they wanted themselves to be God. And so they pursued the closest thing to themselves that they could have. Right. Men pursuing men, women pursuing women. When you make yourself a God, when, when you engage in idolatry in this manner, in this fashion, this is the result. And condemnation is the result of engaging in that. So in this section, Jude tells us that if we are like the unbelieving Israelites, we can know that death and destruction are coming. If we are like the angels who rebelled against their creator, we will be cast into hell. And if we engage in sexual perversions such as homosexuality, we can be sure that our end is being burned by God's wrath forever. This is a warning, and as such, it's granted that those who repent will be saved. And that's good news because (laughs) these sins are listed in a bunch of other sins in in Scripture where it says, uh, it it describes the sins that we've partaken in. It says, as such were some of you. Right? So hear me clearly. What Jude is saying is not that someone who's engaged in homosexual activity can never be saved, but that that activity is anti-Christ. And the activity of Forgetting the God who saved you out of slavery is antichrist. And the activity of rebelling against your creator and the hierarchy that he's made you to serve in is antichrist. Does that make sense? We can repent. We must repent if we are engaging in these things. That is the call of the gospel. You have sinned. Now go and sin no more. (laughs) Turn, repent, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. We must keep in mind what Thomas Manton says of adultery, which broadly applies to sexual immorality. I'm going to extrapolate the principle. I got that word right. Will did this one. (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) I'm going to extrapolate the principle out from what uh, Manton says about adultery and apply it broadly to sexual immorality. Uh, It is sin. He's talking about adultery here. Adultery is a sin that is usually linked with impenitence. It wears out remorse and every spark of a good conscience. This sin grinds at the guardrails of your soul, your conscience. Beware of the trap of sexual immorality. It is fatal and it will consume you. Just as a, a note before we continue on, I want to be clear that the the emphasis on the the sexual immorality is coming out of the way that Jude describes these teachings as being sensual. Um, And so, I believe that the examples given here are being descriptive and they're meant to inform our understanding of what's being taught by these false teachers, hence the emphasis on the sexual immorality. Jude is indicating that when you see these behaviors present or being taught, that you should remember the way that God responds in judgment. Such practices have no no place in our church. Moving on to verses 8 through 13. In verse 8, we see false teachers appealing to their dreams. And this is nothing new as the Lord teaches us in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 25. He says, I have heard when the prophets have said, or I have heard when the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. So this is a common thread in false teachers still today, right? They appeal to a personal, Special revelation from God to justify their contradictions of his word. When they get into an argument with someone who holds the Bible as their standard, these false teachers will go to, well, God told me. God said so. Are you ready to defend yourself against that? Are you ready to contend for the faith against those charges? What standard do we have? Our standard is scripture. God has spoken. And if what you say contradicts this, this wins. So we see in verse eight, not only are they relying on their dreams, they also defile the flesh. And this is another reference to their aforementioned sexual perversions. We're told as well that they reject the authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. It's obvious that they reject God's authority because they do what he calls abominable and teach others to do it well as well. We know from our observation of the world around us though that one who is named among us, one who's in our churches, doesn't usually just hit a wall and start blaspheming God and rejecting God all of the sudden, right? This is a slow burn. It's a progression. And I believe that we can see this even from what Clint taught us last week in Psalm 1. You have these three stages, really, of uh, what's going on. First, you walk in the way, or the counsel of the wicked, then stand in the way of sinners, and then sit in the seat of scoffers. And I think that this is why it's so important that we take piety seriously, even in the seemingly small instances. You don't just all of a sudden wake up and hate God and love your sin more than Him, (laughs) if you're a Christian. like This is something that is a slow progression, and we need, we must keep an eye on these seemingly small things and make sure that they don't snowball into something where we end up rejecting God outright. where we end up rejecting God in a very public way, maybe I should say. So these glorious ones that are spoken of here, they blaspheme the glorious ones, the false teachers do. Who, who are the glorious ones? Well, it pretty clearly seem to be angels. I think one of the other translations says celestial beings or celestial rulers, um, but it could also have, application to another group which the Puritan Thomas Manton suggests that there could have been church officers in mind here as well and he suggests this on the basis of Matthew sixteen nineteen, which we already read earlier but I'll reread it and John 20 verse 23 I'm gonna read these verses back to back okay I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and then John twenty twenty three. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive him, they are not forgiven. And so what Manson is suggesting here is that, yes, this is pretty clearly referring to angels and ones who reside in the the heavenly place. Um, But he believes that church officers um, are also in this plane (laughs) whenever they are making these judgments. Manson says, their regular proceedings are ratified in the court of heaven. We live in an age where no one is held in more contempt than ministers and when nothing is valued less than the authority of the church. It has become the eyesore of the times. And this is true of today as well. Can you think of another group (laughs) more hated in our society than pastors, (laughs) those Bible thumpers? In verse nine, Jude seems to shift gears. He brings up a situation concerning Michael, the archangel, and the devil. And if you read this and thought as I did when I read it for the first time, (laughs) what on earth is that talking about? (laughs) You're in good company, because commentators also think, what on earth is he talking about? (laughs) Uh, This situation, that happens between uh, the archangel michael and the devil um, is not found in scripture anywhere else at least not clearly Uh, there's no clear allusion to this happening anywhere else in scripture Um, and many commentators agree that this could have been a jewish tradition that was held and passed down verbally that jude knew of and others suggest that and i'm less Fond of this, but others suggest that it could have been in an apocryphal writing. Um, I don't see any evidence for that um, in, in my study of it. But wherever it came from, I agree with Matthew Poole, who points out that we now know that it's true because it's in Scripture. <laughs> right now, I'm not saying uh, that the events uh, could not be interpreted in some kind of you know narrative fashion or allegorical sense or anything like that. Um, I think we would have to have a little bit more information about the situation to make a final judgment on it. But I do know that Jude records it here and it has some meaning for us. So, what is that meaning that we can extrapolate out of this situation? We see that Michael, who is one of the highest ranking angels from our conception of it, uh, did not pronounce, quote, blasphemous judgment or as, the, as some other translations say, slanderous accusation against the devil. So the principle that we can draw out here is that even when we are dealing with our enemies, even our enemies that rank far below us, as was the case in this situation, we ought to let holiness be the guide of our conduct and speech. When we are bringing a, a judgment against someone, we may not just make up something to make it seem worse. And what Michael the Archangel does is defer to God's authority. He says, uh, the Lord rebuke you, right? So as it applies to this passage in particular and the context surrounding it of false teachers, if someone is teaching something that's blatantly false, what we cannot condemn them of is that, you know, They've always believed this and what else do they believe and all of these things. We can't just get into our head about what the truth of the matter is without knowing what's going on. We can sure bring up the events that are before us. If you hear someone teach something that's false, you can bring that up. But what you may not do is take it any farther than that in a a slanderous accusation. So Jude uses Michael's conduct as an example on how believers ought to act in contrast to the false teachers of, that are listed in uh, verse 10, the way that they act. So this conduct of Michael is supposed to be contrasting the actions of the false teachers in verse 10. Jude says there, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So in short, these people don't understand the truth. They lie about and misrepresent our God, and all the while they are guided by animalistic instincts. Their natures are evil, and they act in accordance with this nature. And they do so without any reason or morality guiding them. In verse 11, Jude makes it clear by mentioning Cain, Balaam, and Korah, um, all three figures from the Old Testament, that these false teachers desire to thwart God and those who God has put in a place of power for money and power for themselves. You'll remember Cain's jealousy, you'll remember Balaam's uh, pursuit of basically blood money. (laughs) You'll remember Korah rising up with his company and dying because of his jealousy and his desire to be covetous and seek his own greed. So for the sake of time tonight, We're gonna pick up the pace on verses 12 and 13 where we see all of these um, sayings and I'll break them down for us quickly. So first we see hidden reefs at your love feast, meaning that these are blemishes to the church's purity. Continues, as they feast with you without fear. And this means they don't have any concern for the judgment that is coming to them. This could also have application to those that are partaking in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Shepherds feeding themselves, indicating their selfishness and their gluttony. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. This is pretty clearly an allusion to Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verse 14, which reads, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give fruitless trees, in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. So these are apostates. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Thomas Manton says on this uh, phrase that they are like, quote, Waves that seem to mount up to heaven and promise a great deal as if they would swallow the earth. But being dashed against a rock, all their raging and swelling turned into a little foam and froth. The raging sea throws up dirt and scum. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So like shooting stars... These teachers appear to give off a dazzling light and then they promptly die off and become nothing. We'll now move into our final section here, verses 14 through 16. So we see here in 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. So Jude uses a prophecy of Enoch uh, to make his point here. And he denotes that this is the seventh from Adam to distinguish this Enoch from the other Enoch, who was a son of Cain. Let's read the rest of this in verses 15 and 16. To execute, this is uh, the Lord. I'm just going to back up to when this phrase starts Enoch's prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did you know that they were ungodly? (laughs) He says that, what, four or five times here? So in this prophecy... We see Christ coming with angels, and I believe after studying this passage that this would include also potentially saints coming with him to to judge the world. Jude carefully crafts his argument for judgment in this epistle. Jude says, these are people that are destined for condemnation. You've seen judgment on such people in the past, and the Israelites who died in the wilderness, in the angels who rebelled, and in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Cain, in Balaam, in Korah. And now, he says, yet there remains judgment for those who continue in this way. Ultimate judgment. The heading for this section in the New King James Version describes those prophesied of as apostates who are depraved and doomed. We see in verse 16 that these are grumblers and malcontents or grumblers and complainers, as the New King James Version puts it. Meaning they complain under their breath and they complain in secret with others, as well as complaining outwardly and loudly. And as we consider the traits of these false teachers that are listed for us here, we should absolutely be using this list to kind of get a better conception of what a false teacher is going to look like. If we see one of these guys out in the wild. But we should also be using this list to examine our own lives. Are we living as one of these ungodly people? Let it be far from us to be known as complainers. We should joyfully take the portion that the Lord gives us. And if we see an issue, it should be our impulse to labor to fix it. Not to leverage it to stir up divisions within the church and gain support of others um, against the party that's at fault. We ought to address one another privately, as the Lord taught us. Not shout each other's error from the rooftops in order to put another person down. Have you thought about this? When, when you find fault with your brother, what is your, false, your first impulse? Is it to throw it in his face or is it to seek to restore fellowship with him? At its root, this grumbling, complaining heart does not have a right view of God. It is God who ordains everything that comes to pass and he does so, as Romans 8.28 teaches us, for the good of those who love him. And furthermore, the things that these false teachers' desire, bring no satisfaction. They have no reason to anticipate contentment. All the things that they desire bring forth death, like Jude says, continuing in verse 16. Following their own sinful desires, these men are not regenerate. They do not desire the things of God because they are not of God. Jude says they are loud mouthed boasters. And Manton connects this to Enoch's prophecy where such ungodly people speak harsh words against our Lord. In 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21, Paul charges Timothy saying, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So, this is what these false teachers are offering. They are offering irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And this is what we see in their loud mouthed boasting is that they are offering this irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge so we need to learn to recognize this self-congratulatory speech and let it go in one ear and out the other you guys certainly hear this speech on a daily basis if you're on this campus Um, people are talking to talk and calling things true when they reject even the notion that something could be categorized as true the loudmouthed boaster does not care about the validity of his claims because he has made himself his own God. He doesn't need to prove it. <laughs> and lastly, we see here that they are showing favoritism to gain advantage. Do you, Christian, desire to be one who shows favoritism or partiality? I hope the answer is no. I trust that it is so you should recognize that whenever other people show this to you it's not a good thing now there's nothing wrong with having a closer relationship with someone than another person um, but favoritism often carries with it the weight of manipulation those who show partiality may very well be trying to use you so as we've made our way through this text I've tried to include application as we go, but I want to offer in one bulk, uh, lump sum, uh, a big portion of application here at the end. I'd like to touch on how this passage applies to you, VSU student. So what are some of the false teachings that you'll encounter today? Some expression of pluralism. One of the tenets of progressive thought that lends itself to pluralism is taught with great fervor in many of our evangelical circles. And it's this, you need to just be nice. You need to just be kind. When the whole of scripture is thrown out for kindness, niceness, or love that's not defined by scripture, the God of the Bible is just a suggestion. It doesn't matter if you think personally that Jesus is the only way to the Father. You must make room for others at the table, the false teacher suggests. After all, he says, All Jesus really taught was acceptance, right? Wrong. Jesus came teaching things that radically divide. The things that Christ taught made a clear distinction between the light and those who love the light and the darkness and those who love darkness. Jesus didn't come to blur the lines or make people feel good. He made clear distinctions and obedience to his word requires that we accept and teach everything that he commanded us the whole counsel of God, all of scripture, even the bits that divide. Be skeptical of those who teach this pluralism or those who get their funding from people whose stated goal is pluralism. Recently, uh, example of this, a group of evangelical leaders, David French, Russell Moore, and Curtis Chang, have launched a new political study that's being sent into churches and Christian colleges, and their funding comes from an organization called New Pluralists. Sounds like a weird thing for a backer for a Christian Bible study, doesn't it? The website for More French and Chang's study assures the visitor that its funding definitely doesn't influence their message. Money always comes with hooks, but even if this wasn't the case, like even if there could be this financial transaction in which there's no hooks attached, there's no strings attached to the money. What on earth makes you think that whenever a group of pagans come your way with a pile of cash and tell you, hey, good job guys, more of that, that you're doing a good job. Another false teaching that you're, we're going to encounter And before I go into this, I just want to be sensitive. I understand that uh, the way that this word is used today has a plethora of meanings. Um, And I don't want to imply that every definition under the sun for this word is what I'm against. But I'm going to state what it is. And so take that as the definition here. Okay. Okay. Another false teaching that you're going to encounter today is feminism. Feminism, especially the radical expressions we are seeing today, asserts that God's created order is bad and that they need to throw off the bonds of men to be free. And the truth is that God made men to lead in each sphere of external government, the home, the church, and the state. And when men and women reject God and his created order, they reject reality itself. So this is what i'm talking about with feminism when you reject god's created order in favor of something that is not biblical when you reject this like i said you're rejecting reality itself everything is now called into question and nothing can be known for sure this is how you end up with a woman who went to harvard being examined for the highest court in our land and not knowing how to answer the question what is a woman Downstream from feminism is all the LGBTQAI++ stuff. Folks, if God was wrong about gender roles broadly, how do we have any confidence that he was right about marriage or gender identity? This teaching is debased. God is true and the people that peddle this teaching are liars. The church should absolutely want to protect women The church should absolutely want to love their neighbor who struggles with sexual sin, including, but not limited to, homosexual sin, transgender sin. But we cannot come to the scriptures with the presupposition that gender distinctions are outdated and that God only hated homosexuality in the Old Testament. We must let God, we must let scripture inform our beliefs. The Bible should be our presupposition, not cultural indoctrination. Another false teaching that you'll encounter today is antinomianism. We've hit on this one pretty hard between Quorum Deo and Sunday school recently. But as a quick recap of this, antinomian means against the law. This teaching wants to throw off the bonds of any standard that would impose in on one's life. Antinomians pit the law and the gospel together, understanding neither. They lie about the yoke of the law of Christ. And I understand I'm mixing some metaphors there, but they call it heavy when he calls it light. When we truly have a regenerate heart, obeying Christ is not burdensome. It's all we want to do in our true heart. Antinomians think that God is unjust to require obedience to a law. And instead of seeking to worship God and to follow his holy and just law, they set themselves up as their own God and they create evil and tyrannical laws all the while professing to have none. Another false teaching, one opposed to antinomianism, is legalism. And legalism is one, or when one binds someone else's conscience with extra biblical rules. The Pharisees did this. And everyone in here is probably pretty familiar with what I would call stereotypical legalism, the kind that makes women wear skirts and make men have haircuts that don't touch their ears, anathematizes secular music and entertainment, and prohibits shorts in public, most importantly. And this is definitely wrong. Like, it 100% falls into the category of legalism, but I want to propose to you that there are other things that could fall into the category of legalism that you may not have considered. Things that you may currently or may have been in the past compelled to do that are at their root. Legalism. Think back two to three short years ago. If you don't get this shot or wear this mask, you don't love your neighbor. Legalism. Another one that fits into legalism is diet. Um, this one's very popular to talk about between the crunchy and silky debate. <laughs> um, but if you have a food preference it's very easy to let that be something that bleeds into um, conversations with others because it's it's something eating food is so central to our being as humans like we need it for sustenance and so it's something that every time we sit down for a meal like our food preferences are going to come up and every time we're invited over to someone's house we have someone else over to our house these things are going to come up but our diets can easily and often do become bludgeoning devices to beat our family and friends over the heads with Um, one that many people wouldn't think of legalism but categorically exemplifies legalism is when people are uh, what is called teetotalers um, or teach that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol Um, the Bible argues against excessive drinking I want to be clear that I am wholeheartedly sympathetic to the way that alcohol has destroyed um, good things in the past but Because alcohol has destroyed things that are good does not mean that it is in itself, in and of itself is bad. Using anything to excess is bad. Using anything in a way that God did not desire it to be used is bad, alcohol included. And so when somebody tells you that you may not drink alcohol or you are in sin, that is what I'm speaking of here. Not someone who argues against the excessive use of it. In fact, the Bible argues that wine is a regular part of the Christian's life. I believe that this was the element that was used in the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that it gladdens the heart of men, cheers God and men, and is an aid to those that are dying and those who are of bitter spirit, which we might say depression or melancholy. And the references on those are Psalm 104, verse 15, Judges verse, or chapter nine, verse 13, in Proverbs chapter 31, verses six and seven. You wouldn't think to go to, uh, to Proverbs 31 to get your, your alcohol arguments, huh? Get you a beer and a wife. <laughs> in conclusion, as believers in Christ, we need to constantly be on guard, standing against wicked men who oppose our Lord by teaching what is contrary to his word. Yet as Jude warns us, we ought to be upright in our pronouncement of judgment. Instead of uttering blasphemous judgment, we should learn from Michael's example to be modest in our speech, even against our enemies. May we, by the grace of God, contend for our faith. We must engage in purifying the church from these blemishes. We must be jealous for the body that Christ has called us into. The sad reality is this. Many of us, myself included, at times, have heard and possibly embraced these false teachings. We need to be ready to examine our hearts in the light, by the light of the Word of God, pleading with God to save our souls from the desires of our flesh. Christian, if you find yourself here, having been deceived, turn from the falsehoods of the world and embrace Christ. He will embrace you when you seek him. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for how it informs us that in times like those of Jude. And in times like ours, there will be certain people who creep in among our churches, certain people who were designated for condemnation. And Lord, I pray, as we will sing in just a moment, I pray that these people would turn from their folly. Lord, I pray that they would be brought into the church, uh, into the, the invisible church. Lord, I pray that you would save their souls. Lord, I pray, if not, that you would equip us remove them from being a spot on the purity of your body of your bride Lord I pray that we would be jealous for our faith for, for you, for the church Lord I pray that we would have a righteous indignation planted in us whenever we see these falsehoods being taught, I pray that we would go to bat for these things and that we would do so with piety and holiness God help us to fight for the faith as you've charged us to. Lord, help us to walk in this faith uprightly. Lord, help us to plant this word down deep in our hearts. Help us to apply it in our lives, in every area of our lives. Lord, I pray that no area would be off limits from the governance of your rule, of your word's authoritative rule in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would submit to you and by doing so that we would contend for our faith as you've called us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.